Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Oh, at this time, we'd like to invite our guest speaker. Um, I had a really wonderful time and a privilege of, of meeting him and his wife yesterday. Um, and also got to know about not only his personal life, but also his uh, ministry life down in um, Torrance, uh, California. And, and so um, I, I just want to um, just to reiterate that he is a, a wonderful pastor, uh, someone that he really, really um, loves, uh, loves the Lord. And um, I just want to invite Pastor Kim Kara to, to um, our, our Sunday service. Come on up. Well, good morning. It is good to be here, good to, to worship with you. Um, I really don't take opportunities like this for granted. I, I heard of this church in high school, so I remember this is long before I felt a calling into ministry. So to be here uh, to worship with you is really a blessing. Um, I will say this, though, since mo mo most of you don't know me, there's a bit of a pressure when you're a, a guest speaker, because you're kind of wondering, like, is this going to be good or is it going to be a waste of our time? And... Um, I would just say maybe temper your expectations a bit. I mean, uh, a while back I was speaking on a campus and I began to preach and there was a, a young lady right in front of me and, and she fell asleep. And not that like, I'm trying to stay awake, I really want to hear, she just got comfortable, like just put her head back, went to sleep. And it was about five minutes into my sermon. And so I'm thinking like, what could I have said in five minutes that put you to sleep? So I would just say that, just don't get your hopes up. Uh, if I can keep you awake. <laughs> for more than five minutes that I'm doing better than normal. Um, but they, they invited me here to speak. You're in this series on mental health and you're discussing this idea that the struggle is real. And I'm so thankful that they, they asked me to come to uh, speak because of our church's love for gospel-centered biblical counseling. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I'm, I'm guessing a few of you have heard of kind of a lot of stereotypes about biblical counseling. But realize that at its heart, biblical counseling is about how we walk with people in love, and try to apply the truths of the gospel uh, to, offer, to provide hope and help for the lives of sinners and sufferers. But I understand when I, when, I, when I talk about biblical counseling, I'm not simply referring to kind of the official counseling ministries of the church, but how each of us should be able to offer hope uh, through, uh, in Christ through the word of God. In other words, even though most of us aren't formal counselors, we all counsel. Right, as Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good as building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Two ideas there, build up or corrupt. So think about that for a moment. You're a counselor and you're constantly counseling with two consistent outcomes. You're offering grace or corruption. So someone says to you, I, I get so angry at, uh, <clears throat> I get so angry, or work is making me stressed, or my child has turned their back on Jesus. Whatever comes out of your mouth is counsel. Even if you simply say, don't worry about it, for better or for worse, you've counseled them. So get that, you're a counselor, one way or another, you're advising people, you're revealing to others your sense of truth, you're arguing for a worldview, you're exhorting some sort of action or inaction, you're encouraging hope and trust and worship in something or someone. And this is why we need to consider how we develop a culture of care within our churches. In other words, 
In a month where you're considering mental health and discussing how the struggle is real, my hope really isn't to, to simply encourage you to start a formal counseling ministry, but really to consider how each of you who's sitting here in the pews um, would be able to offer hope to those in need. How can you lovingly point others to Christ and apply the gospel to the real struggles each of us faces? And so that's what, we, what I'm going to focus on this morning, how to develop a culture of care in, in this church where you love and serve sinners and sufferers. And with that, I'm hoping to help you to have better conversations with those around you. In other words, as much as anything, I just want to help you and encourage you to walk a little better with those who are hurting. Now, that sounds great and maybe even beautiful in theory, but maybe at least a few of you are thinking, could I really do that? I mean, have you ever been with someone as they shared some particular sin or some particular suffering and you weren't sure what to say? <clears throat> if you're like me, you've, you've stood there after a service as a mom weeps because her child wants to transition. You've sat down with both the abused and the abuser. You've had your mind race as someone shares some uh, suicidal ideation. You've prayed for families who find out that their child will have profound disabilities if the child survives at all. You've felt lost as someone shares about their eating disorder or their struggle with anxiety or addiction or pornography. And so often we simply mumble something like, hey, I'll I'll pray for you, or maybe you should talk to so-and-so. And it's not that you don't want to help. Often your heart is breaking. You wish so much to be a source of grace, but you really aren't sure what to say. And you don't want to say the wrong thing and actually make things worse. Or maybe you just kind of feel like whatever you're going to offer is trite, like some truth or promise they've likely heard a hundred times. And it's in these moments that the unspoken question of our hearts isn't like, can Jesus get them into heaven? It's like, can Jesus get them through the day? In other words, we have this resolute conviction that Jesus offers hope for eternal life, but where we often struggle is to understand how he offers hope for everyday life. Because when it comes to things like depression and cutting, same-sex attraction and addiction, uh, panic attacks and broken relationships. We know we're supposed to believe that the gospel speaks to these things. We just don't know what it actually says. And personally, I know what this feels like. I know what it's like to stumble over my words, to have my mind race, uh, to come up with an answer only to end up with with empty ideas, to resort to cliches simply because I feel like, well, as a pastor, I got to say something. In fact, that's really how I kind of started my personal journey deeper into gospel-centered biblical counseling. We planted our church about 20 years ago. It was within the first year. I was sitting across from a couple, and they wanted counsel. The doctors were recommending that their child should be put on medication. I had no idea what that was even about. They didn't want to. They want to know what I thought. And on top of that, they want to know, well, just how can we be a better parent to our, our son? And At the time, our church was less than a year old, meaning I had less than a year of pastoral experience. I had no kids of my own. And so though I had certain theoretical convictions as to the importance of the Bible and counseling that I learned in seminary, I had little understanding of what it actually looked like. Ultimately, I went back to school to get a degree in biblical counseling, and I'm so thankful for this because it was truly transforming, and yet in unexpected ways. First of all, my hope was simply to be a better counselor. I pictured sitting across from someone and then finally knowing what to say. And I hope I am a slightly better counselor as I was 20 years ago. But in God's sovereignty, there were a couple of unexpected outcomes. First, it was vitally important for my own life. My wife also decided to study biblical counseling as well. 
Uh, but this ended up being so important for our lives. We were thinking, how do we serve others? And yet it transformed our marriage, and it continues to transform us every day. But second, from a ministry perspective, the understanding of what Christ truly means to people has transformed the whole ministry of our church. Beyond formal counseling, this affected our small groups and how we encourage parents to shepherd their kids, our preaching ministry, our interactions as a staff, even the discussions after service on a Sunday in the fellowship hall. It's changed everything. And I'm not feigning humility in saying that there is so much for me to do. You can come up after this message and say, well, what should I do about this? And I may, again, be at a loss. But at the same time, my conviction continues to grow that the gospel speaks to life. It speaks to those who are hurting. It offers hope. With this in mind, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I think this text will speak to what we're discussing. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to address some difficulties in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was serving. And so much of it focuses on their call to live well with one another and particularly to love one another. And part of his argument is this. The church is is that unique, it's that special, with a particular call to gospel ministry. I mean, that in part is why the church exists, to make the gospel known for eternal life and everyday life. Listen Listen as I read to you our passage. We'll mainly focus on verse 15, but I'll read verses 14 through 16 for context. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Because he's basically saying, I'm going to tell you how to live. But notice then what he says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So his argument actually is, let me explain to you what the church is. And then he goes on to say, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in this world, taken up in glory. Okay, so there's a lot there. That's why we're only going to focus on verse 15. But Paul describes the church and its ministry with two ideas. It's the church of the living God, and it's a pillar and buttress of the church, of the truth. Or we might say there's a focus on worship and a focus on the word. And then he kind of speaks to what is the heart of it all. It's the gospel of Christ. That's what verse 16 is, kind of a concise summary of the gospel, of the truths of the gospel. But this gets to the heart of the ministry of the church, a focus on the worship, a focus on worship and a focus on the word. And because of this, it answers the question that we should be asking, how do we faithfully love and serve those who are suffering? By bringing the gospel to bear on the lives of people through a focus on the worship of God and the word of God. Now that may sound a bit vague or uh, a bit general. So what does it practically look like? We focus on the worship of God by offering sinners a better Savior, and we focus on the Word of God by offering sufferers a better story. Okay, so hopefully this will be clear as we go. Um, and, and we're kind of separating ideas for the purpose of the sermon, but as you, can, as you can imagine, there's a lot of overlap between sinner and sufferer, between worship and story. But for clarity's sake, that's what we're going to focus on, and really it's our key idea. To develop a culture of care in our churches, we must faithfully minister the gospel by offering sinners a better story and sufferers, uh, sinners a better savior and sufferers a better story. And we'll let that guide our time. So first, equip your church family to offer sinners a better savior. Realize that the worship is fundamental to who we are, and few things are more dangerous than wrong worship, bad worship. I'm not sure what comes to mind when you think of, of wrong worship, of bad worship. I have no musical ability, 
So that kind of comes to mind for me. A while back, our worship leader encourages us to clap. But even though I have no rhythm, I feel like obligated because I'm in the front, right? And I'm a pastor. Uh, but just after like a minute of this, my daughter looks at me with a look that says, I don't think there's any song in the whole world that has that rhythm. Like whatever you're doing, just stop. And I, I, I can't sing. I can't sing on tune. My wife will often sing in harmony, which just confuses me. Like I don't under, I, I know it sounds good, but I can never actually do that. In fact, if you're ever next to me and you think, wow, he's singing harmony, it's because I've gone so far from the melody that I've somehow stumbled onto the harmony for a note or two. To me, that is bad worship. But the worship in our text is talking about, needless to say, is something much different. In our verse, Paul is contrasting the church which worships the living God and the city of Ephesus which worshiped the lifeless idols of the culture. Right? That's wrong worship. Try to imagine, if you will, a city rife with statues and shrines. The worship of idols is everywhere. And Paul's contrasting that with the worship of Christ. So what does that have to do with, with loving sinners? Just about everything. Why? Because personal ministry isn't simply about helping sinners or sufferers. Even more fundamentally, you're helping worshipers. Okay, so, so often it's easy to view people through the lens of their struggles. They are depressed. They are a video game addict. They are in, in, they're struggling with infertility. They are unemployed. But worship gets to who we are at at a deeper level. Because the real question isn't if we will worship. Everyone worships. The question is what we will worship. Will it be Christ or will it be the idols of this world? And what makes this so significant to our personal ministry is that our hope and joy, our anger and frustration, our perseverance and peace, our addictions and worries, our thankfulness and strength, they are intimately tied to what we worship and trust. The way we teach at our counseling class is this. Everyone is a worshiper. Every moment is a worship moment. And what we worship will determine how you live. Okay, so for the, the teen who is struggling with anger towards his parents, more than he is a teen or a son or even angry, he is a worshiper. He is longing for something. He believes something. He hopes for something. He has placed his faith in something. The same is true for the college student sleeping with her boyfriend, the tiger mom who pushes her kids and gives them the wrong priorities, the grandparent who struggles with loneliness. At the heart of how they live and respond to life is their worship. Let me give you an example that will maybe hopefully clear it up a little bit. But imagine you're trying to walk with someone who's extremely anxious about finances because they just lost their job. Where does sinful stress and fear come from? Most often it comes when our idols are threatened. Again, think about that idea. Sinful anxiety comes when our idols are threatened. Maybe to picture it this way, imagine I had this glass statue here and it was your literal idol. Imagine you really believed that it would protect your family, make you financially prosperous, give you good circumstances, grant you health. Now imagine I had a hammer and I was about to smash your idol. How would you feel? Again, imagine you really believe this is going to do something for you. Likely, you would feel anxious or angry. I'm going to hurt that what you need, what you worship, what you're following. Your idol is being threatened, and so you're stressed. Again, sinful anxiety is about our idols being threatened, and it's a pretty easy concept. My teenagers get this. They have uh, heard it so often before that recently one of my sons mentioned being a little stressed, and I hear his younger sister scream from the other room, your idols are being threatened, right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's good theology. Don't, don't scream in counseling, but that's good theology. But with this in mind, 
So if you think about it, if a person is stressed over money, what are they worshiping? They're worshiping money. It's what they believe will offer security or identity or support of some sort. And because it's being threatened because they're out of a job, they're anxious. Okay, just think about stress in your life. Trust that likely there's an idol being threatened. So what is the cure for that kind of worry and anxiety? It's not getting a better job or making more money. We have to turn from worshiping and trusting our idols like money and instead worshiping Christ. If we do that, our hearts rest. Like in that moment, you lose your job and you think money is not my God. I trust in Jesus. You're going to be okay. That brings us back to the relevance of our passage. In 1 Timothy 3, what does Paul say? He says, this church is the church of the living God. The living God. And he's not just simply waxing poetic. He's establishing the contrast between the dead and lifeless idols of the culture and the true and living God of the Bible. Again, Ephesus was rife with paganism. There's gods everywhere. And Paul's saying, we, we worship the living God. Our God is real and powerful and active and moving. So slow down and think about what that means for us. We live in a culture with very few statues and temples and yet millions of dead gods. But our church, this church, Christian layman, you worship the living God. Right, so while our, our, our world worships what is lifeless and sacrifices itself on its altars, the one that we live for, the one who defines and directs our entire existence, the only one we look to for hope and help, he is the living Christ. And this places before us the beautiful responsibility of the church. Our job then is to show that Christ is worthy to be trusted and loved and worshipped over the idols of the world. This is why the church is able to speak so powerfully to the sins of life, because it offers something bigger and better and really something so much more beautiful than the idols of the world fa- falsely promise us. It offers us Christ. And this is important because, like I mentioned, we're, we're constantly worshiping, meaning it's not enough to tell people, hey, stop worshiping your idol, because they'll always be worshiping. We have to offer them something better to worship. As one of my counseling professors put it, he said, we have to push out inferior worship with superior worship. Because the only way to defeat the worship of idols and the deeply rooted sins attached to them is to worship something better and greater and more meaningful. Because understand what is happening when the, go- understand what is happening when the gospel frees us from sin. It's not simply changing our desires, it's changing our worship. So our ministry means we offer a better savior. And so here's the point of all this. Continue to grow as a church and what it means to offer people a better savior. We need to remind people to offer, we need to to be ready to offer the gospel, not just for eternal life, but for everyday life. Right, to the addict, we have to offer something more than your addiction is a sin. We need to give them something greater and more beautiful and more satisfying to pursue. They need the living water to quench the thirst of their parched souls. They need Christ. So what does this look like practically? It's a longer discussion, deserving more time. We teach like whole classes and seminars on this. But one thing I would think about as you're trying to do this, because Jesus is better, it's theologically true, a little vague, like Jesus is better than money is that I would try to identify what people are seeking from their idols. Because remember, people pursue idols not for the idols themselves, but for what the idols offer them. 
Now, those people don't, don't worship money because they like green paper with pictures of presidents. They worship money because it offers things like security or identity or pleasure or hope or meaning. And they're all very different. The person who loves money for identity, they want to drive a certain car, is very different than the person who loves money for security, who wants to drive a very dependable car. Same idol, but very different struggles. But understand, what these idols are promising, they're meant to find in Christ. And that's where you get to step in. By knowing what people seek from their idols, we can then show them from Scripture how Christ is more and offers more. For example, for the husband and father who neglects his family to to find an identity in work or money, they have to see that there's a a more enduring and meaningful identity as an adopted child of God. Like that's what I'm going to try to convince them. Your identity is not what you own. It's not your job. Your identity is in who you are in Christ. For the young lady uh, looking for intimacy through a sexual relationship with her boyfriend, she needs to see that Christ offers a deeper and more substantial relationship with him. So we have to offer a better savior. At the end of the next point, I'll offer a few practical suggestions on equipping our churches, but just one more encouragement before we move on. If you want to establish a culture of care in this church, you have to consider your culture. I mean, if, if, you, if you're going to offer Christ as the better savior, you have to ask, do you have a culture where people are willing to talk about their idolatry and their sin? Are people okay with others speaking in their lives? Are people free to share about things like abuse or addiction or whatever it is? I mean, if you're going to develop a culture of care... <clears throat> We need to consider if our culture allows for the sharing of sin and suffering. In fact, I think one way to tell if someone is really connected to your church is do they have at least one person who is able to speak into their lives personally? If they don't have that, they likely aren't really part of the church in a meaningful way. They're just an attender, able to share their sins and sufferings. And so we had to be intentional in changing our culture to one that, where the gospel trumps cultural norms. I remember reminding our church often that we are all sinners and sufferers, including the leaders. It meant having people share testimonies of their struggles and the hope they found in Christ to, to normalize the openness and, and highlight the gospel. It meant explaining to our church family, as I mentioned earlier, that all of us counsel, maybe not formally, but all of us are speaking into people's lives. It meant offering a healthier view of leadership where it's not simply a pastor or the lead pastor or or whoever who has to do certain visitations or things like that. We're all meant to be a part of one another's lives. For Lighthouse, we're very much in process, but for you, as you pursue a culture of care, consider your culture. What do you need to do to encourage your family to walk with sinners and sufferers? Okay, second idea here is equip your church family to offer sufferers a better story. Equip your church family to offer sufferers a better story. So our church is filled with sufferers, right? Even though we don't always see it on a Sunday morning. Last fall, I was, I was at a marathon, obviously not running, um, but I'm watching my, my wife and a few members of our church, they were finishing the race. And so I'm near the end and needlessly say, at this point, people are so tired and they look so unhappy. Like, a pretty good argument not to run a marathon, right? And so I'm, but in the middle of the course, there is a photographer, professional photographer. He's taking pictures as people pass. I guess you can buy them later. And so people, you know, they're running. They're at the end. They look like they want to beat up whoever convinced them to do this. And the minute they see the camera, it's like, 
you know, like this, right? And they're just so happy. And then the, right when they get past the camera, they're just, again, like they, they just did the most unfun thing in the world, which they kind of did. Some of our members feel that way as they come to church, right? They smile and they sing, but it's not really what's going on in their heart because they're in such pain. And seemingly no Sunday morning service is going to change the hurt they feel, the cold marriage, the ongoing health problems that makes every week, maybe even every day, seem somewhat unbearable, that broken relationship that hurts to the core, some great loss, some pain, some manner of brokenness, some sense of hopelessness. And so church only becomes kind of the glassy facade of the Christian life. Outwardly they worship, inwardly they're miserable. Again, our church are filled with sufferers. Like I don't know many people here, and yet I know all of you have suffered in some way. We'll look at our text. At the end of the verse, Paul describes the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. The illustration is an architectural one of the buttress, likely the foundation, and the pillars which hold up the truth. And the imagery would have been vivid to the believers in Ephesus because in that temple was the temp- in that city was the temple of the goddess Diana or Artemis. It was so magnificent, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And upon this enormous foundation were dozens of gigantic pillars that supported this massive roof. And it was not only an incredible architectural achievement, but it was likely the most amazing thing these Ephesians had ever seen. Right? They're not going to Hawaii, they're not Googling beautiful architecture, there's no Instagram Like, this is it. This is the most incredible thing they'd seen. And Paul's point is that they they have the similarly amazing responsibility to uphold the truth of the one true God. So in the same way that the foundation and pillar supported the massive roof, the church, this church, has this incredible call to uphold the truths of Scripture. The difference, however, is this. The temple of Artemis was beautiful, but it told a lie. It painted a false reality about a false god. And yet, brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to proclaim the truth of God in a world of lives, to uphold the reality of Christ against the backdrop of deception that our world presents. Now, this starts with things like sound doctrine, holding to the truths of Scripture. But practically, as we think of ministering to sufferers and offering them the truths of the Bible, it's important to remember that the Bible tells a bigger and a better story. Okay, so for for many of the people we're ministering to, it's easy for them to see their immediate circumstances as being the whole story, especially if there's difficulty or suffering. They become consumed by the challenges of life until they have difficulty seeing anything else. But in this, they're they're telling a story largely devoid of God. So when you hear things like, my life is spiraling out of control, I'm all alone, how can I not be worried? I feel like my prayers are meaningless, this isn't fair. They're they're hearing, they're telling a story where God is missing. But in this, they're trying to understand their story all the while forgetting the author, ignoring the one who's in control and who's written a bigger and a better story for their lives. And so then this becomes important to personal ministry. We need to use the truths of Scripture to tell a better story. And really, this idea of story is all over Scripture. The authors of the epistle, for instance, so often offer the truths of the gospel in story form. Right here, in, uh, we see it in verse 16, Colossians 2, we're dead in our transgressions, God made us alive, set aside the legal demands, nailed it to the cross, that's our story. My point is that we need to be able to tell a similarly beautiful story rooted in the gospel. Right? Our, our members' understanding of suffering is determined in part how they understand what's really going on. What is God doing? And so without a better grasp on how suffering fits into the greater story of redemption, the grace of suffering will be lost. 
So I want you to think about that. Biblically speaking, suffering, God doesn't just give us grace in our suffering, but suffering is meant to be a grace. It's meant to be God's kindness to us to accomplish many things in our lives. Some seen, some unseen. On the other side of eternity, when all is made known, we'll see exactly what God is doing. But grace is meant to be part of his kindness towards us. So the personal ministry of the word must display our conviction that God's word speaks powerfully, particularly, and practically to the sufferings we're in by not only offering grace to press on with joy, but by telling us a good story in the gospel. Now, importantly, I'm not saying that suffering is simple. Like I mentioned earlier, abuse, that should clearly demonstrate that. Suffering is complex because circumstances are complex and because the heart is complex. And so someone is in significant suffering. You don't lead with, well, this is God's good plan. A wise counselor knows this. But I think the truth of the bigger story is helpful because it offers hope. And understand, this is something that we want everyone to be able to do. Because sure, you you want to have maybe a counseling ministry and people go there and they get help. But it is a precious grace when members of this church can offer help by reframing suffering within the larger narrative of Scripture. So the practical question you need to ask is, can I tell a better story? If someone tells me, comes to me and says, you know, my, my child just walked away from the faith. Can you tell them a better story in the gospel? There's so many examples, and this is where I would get bogged down, so I'm just going to give you one example. Think about individuals and families affected by disability. If you know our church, you know this is, that ministry is very, very important to us. But think about what's going on. Maybe a husband and wife on the brink of divorce in part because of the relentlessness of taking care of a child with disabilities. Right? The, the, the percentage of divorces of families with disabilities, it's huge. It's, it's way higher than the, the norm. Think of the older couple worried about who will take care of their daughter who has special needs after they die, a retiree who begins the slow descent into Alzheimer's. Can you tell a better story? Can you tell a story of God's sovereignty that tells them, that tells a family that their child's autism is not some freak genetic mishap? Rather, these children and families have been uniquely made to bring glory to Christ. They exist to say something great about our great God. We see that in John 9. Can you tell a story of power that offers grace and strength to not only survive the unique challenges they face, but even thrive with hope and joy and thankfulness? Can you tell a story of purpose that tells them that their trials are not some unlucky twist of fate, but part of God's magnificent, even if painful plan to do something great in their lives and through their lives? And of course, can you tell them the end of the story? That one day, only God will make everything right. Right? Some sufferings aren't going away. Healing is not the norm. But one day on the other side of eternity, God is going to make everything new. The lame will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the mute will, won't just speak, but they'll sing. And things like autism and Down syndrome and Alzheimer's, they will only be understood as a part of history. And so we need to be able to tell a better story. We're near the end of our time, so let me just offer a few practical things that might be helpful in growing your own ability to care for sinners and sufferers and to equip your church to do that. One is just begin a simple study of counseling. Like maybe you could just read one book. If I had one book to recommend, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp. Maybe just start there. For us, we have counseling classes online. You could just watch the videos and maybe that'll be an encouragement to you. Second is pursue training for the entire church. Again, one thing like we do is we encourage everyone in our church to take our counseling class. 
right? And most often, very few of them will actually join our formal counseling ministry, but we want everyone to be able to have better discussions. Or maybe it's just holding a one-day seminar or, or taking people to a conference. Lastly, let small groups be a hub for care and equipping, um, for equipping others to care. So think about small groups as a place where people, not just pastors, can offer help and hope. And like, how is that gonna really, what's that really like? Last thing, last thing before I conclude, you may think this is a lot, like I'm, like I move, right? I remember I was preaching in Alabama once and I had a lot of material to get through. And after the first session, one of the elders came up to me and he said, Pastor Kim, we not only talk slow, we listen slow. Okay, so I know I'm fat. I like, I know I go, so I don't know, maybe later you can listen on like half speed or something. But um, so it might be overwhelming. Maybe you have limited time, resources, whatever. Can I just encourage this and then just take the next step? Like, don't expect to have a full-blown counseling ministry by next week, but what is the first step you could take? Could it, could it be just to read that book? Could you go to a conference? Could you host a mini-conference? Could you take one class? What could you do? Come up with one thing you want to do to take that next step to be able to walk with sinners and sufferers. Okay, I need to close. Hopefully you see the big picture. Walk with sinners and sufferers by offering a better Savior and telling a better story. There's so many examples I could talk about this. One of the best people I know who is able to see their story within the bigger story of redemption is Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you know her. She's one of my heroes in the faith, and I don't say that very lightly. I'm sure a lot of you know who she are, but but my mother introduced us to her when we were children. Um, But what makes her story unique is that she's been a quadriplegic now for over 50 years due to a diving accident when she was a teenager. And yet she's had this powerful ministry to people. But not, not just because of what she can do or talent or ability, but because how she understands suffering. Right? Her book, When God Weeps, is stunning. So many quotes I could share, but a little while back, she was diagnosed with cancer. And in my mind, I'm like, God, enough is enough. Like, she, of anyone who doesn't need to suffer more, it's her. She's constantly in pain. And this is what she said. I've often said that our afflictions come from the hand of our all-wise and sovereign God who loves us and wants what is best for us. So although cancer is something new, I'm content to receive from God whatever he deems fit for me. She said, yes, it's alarming, but rest assured that Ken, that's her husband, and I are utterly convinced that God is going to use us to stretch our faith, brighten our hope, and strengthen our witness to others. I mean, she ever understands cancer as part of her beautiful story. Brothers and sisters, let's offer a better Savior and tell a better story. Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Again, it is a privilege to be here with this church family. Uh, I don't take it for granted. And uh, Lord, as I have been hearing encouraging things about what they're doing and they're trying to, to walk with one another, I pray that you continue to encourage them in that endeavor to help each of them to know better what it means to offer uh, a better uh, Savior and to tell a better story. And through that, Lord, may this be a place where sinners and sufferers can come to find help and hope. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.